You have heard me say it before. There are 96,976 people that live, and I've done the math on this, that live within one town, just one town away of our church, this building. They have no kind of personal context for any, anything oriented around the, the, the nature of who Jesus really is. He is, for most people, uh, for most of our neighbors, like he is for most people around the world. He's either a, a great teacher, a, a moral philosopher, maybe a historical religious figure, or incrementally he is a figment of the ignorance imagination. And I get that. I didn't grow up in the church. At one level or another, many of those things were things that I thought. Those people are my people. They're my friends. They're, they're a lot of my family. And my heart is for them. I, I get them. Or at least, I mean, let's be honest, I get them as much as a guy who has spent every Sunday for the last 37 years or so in church. They are my friends, and I know for many of you they are your friends. But I, I want to make it even more personal. They're your spouse. They're your kids. They're your grandchildren. And while maybe they have said what some have said to me over the years, they're happy for you, and they're glad that maybe you found some religion, or, or, or happy that, that whatever you've discovered is working out great for you, and that's great, they're just not all that interested. And if you're honest, I mean, you can get that, right? I can. Let's be honest. Jesus... Um, Jesus' people, I should say. Jesus' people have not really been the salt and light he's called us to be. The truth is that while we are called to be disciples of Jesus, which if you were here last week, we talked about what that means. It didn't mean that you were merely a learner of this new rabbi, Jesus' ways. You weren't just students of his, but you actually be, you desire to know what he knows so you could be like he is, so that you can do what he does. Our knowledge of his ways and of him, it, it needs to move, and, and for a lot of us, it hasn't from our heads to our hearts, in order that we might become like who he is and to begin to do what he did. And we have not done this all that well. I'd argue that one of the reasons we haven't done it all that well is that we, even though we attach Jesus' name to ourselves and to our churches, we... We really don't know who he is all that well either. So it's no wonder we don't become like him in order to do what he did. And that's what's at the heart of what we've been doing these last few weeks in this series, Cradle to Grave, where we picked up the story right from the cradle on Christmas Eve, and we're trying to follow the story, follow Jesus really step by step as best we can, right up to his crucifixion on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter morning. Underlying, uh, the underlying premise is that so much fiction... And, and religion and lore and culture has built up around Jesus, it's really easy to miss the real Jesus of Nazareth. That statement was true then. It was what his cousin John warned about all the time. You're going to miss him. You could miss him. And I think it's incrementally true now. Add 2,000 years of culture and religion and lore to the story. And so what we've been trying to do is look at Jesus with... Fresh eyes, 
No preconceived notions, expected or anticipated outcomes, but to understand him anew, and hopefully aright. Because when you see who he really is, what you begin to discover is, well, you begin to discover that our neighbors and our friends and our kids don't really know who he is, but I think the deeper, more personal revelation to those of us that are church people is, he might not even be who we want him to be. The gospel is unsettling. And so this morning, I want to put this up front. This morning, Jesus, still in the very infancy, these are still, this, uh, the, these stories are going to come from the second chapter of Mark. He's early in his ministry years. This morning, Jesus actually takes up on three of the most common misunderstandings about himself and his ways and who he is and what he came to do. Three, three ways that he's misunderstood by people outside of the church and three ways that he's misunderstood by people inside of the church. And what's fascinating is both Mark, the Gospel of Mark, Mark essentially wrote these stories down from Peter. Peter just dictated. Peter couldn't, couldn't um, write, so he dictated these stories down to Mark. Mark, the, Peter's gospel is Mark's gospel. And so you have these firsthand accounts from Mark. And, and, and these same three stories are, are recorded by Luke, a first century Greek historian that set out to do a full accounting of Jesus' life and ministry. And they both put these stories right in consecutive order. And the way they're usually taught is that they're taught one by one, maybe week by week. But when you teach it that way, and it's fine to teach it that way, you actually lose the bigger overarching picture. You lose a little bit of the forest through the trees. What you're going to see in these three stories is that Jesus is dismantling not only first century pagan and, and Jewish religious beliefs, and systems, but he actually takes on head first three things that the church over the years, three hurdles in a sense that Jesus took down out of keeping people from God that the church over the years has put back up that keep my friends and yours. The challenges that can keep my kids and yours from coming to follow Jesus. He actually, Jesus takes them on very early in his ministry. Those challenges that his followers mistakenly embrace are first, that religion has to do with lots of rules and practices, much of which make no sense if you were to step back and think about them. And, and you know, a lot of our, our friends are told that you have to, you know, believe and comply with all of these things in order to follow Jesus. The second, it is in order to get right with God, I need to do that through some guy in a robe. And hey, let's be honest, Guys like me, I don't wear a robe, but let's be honest, I'm the upfront guy. I am the guy with, you know, an old navy robe on, if you will. Guys like us, we don't have the best reps in town anymore. We, we have sullied the reputation of the upfront guy in the church. And finally, I think the third one is that Jesus must be awfully hateful because that's what his followers seem to be. So let's jump back in our story. Um, we've been following Jesus. We have this map here, and if, you're, if you were with us, you remember that we started. All four of the gospel writers start with the gospel, or excuse me, start with Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. John is baptizing people down here in the River Jordan, just above the Dead Sea. And John, if you were here, right, 
John's drawing tens and tens of thousands of people out from Jerusalem, which is about a day's walk away just to the west of where he was baptizing people. He's pulling them out of the temple with his message that the whole temple system and all of the religious figures there had become corrupt, and that a new king was actually on the scene. No one had, had seen him yet, but he, he was there, and that this new king was coming with a new kingdom, and that in order not to miss it, it would be very possible to miss it, in order not to miss it, you would need to repent, which meant that you would need to change the way you're thinking. We like it when we read the stories and say, yes, they need to change, they needed to change the way they're thinking. I would argue that call to repentance it would, be, would be the same call that you and I have today, that we need to change the way we think. And that might even mean about our faith. We need to rethink everything and then change the direction in which we're walking based on changing the way we think. Jesus is still asking you and I to do this. If you remember, then people would ask John, well, what do we do? What do we do? And he would say, well, you need to bear fruit in accordance with your repentance. In other words, you don't just believe it. You don't make an, a mental acquiescence to it. You actually start to live out the ways of a very different kingdom. An upside-down kingdom, as we've been looking at. One that makes really no sense relative to either religion, at least first-century religion, or the world's kingdom as we know it. Last week, we saw Jesus calling uh, some of his disciples, his first four, um, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And of course, it would make perfect sense who he called for an upside-down kingdom. This new king, he does not call the best and the brightest, but he calls these common fishermen to follow him. Men that had already been kind of removed from the ability to be because they were not able to keep up somehow in the Jewish educational system. They were not the best of the best of the best. And so they are now home plying their family trade. He gives Peter, James, and John new identities, not based on, uh, not based on who they are or what they've done. New identities, not based actually even on their faith in Jesus but on Jesus' faith in them. A totally new way of understanding who Jesus is. If you missed it, go back and pick up the story there. But today we're going to move on. Here's what Peter told Mark happened. And, and Mark wrote it down. He said, after John was put in prison, of course, John's message was, you know, causing quite a stir. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. Can we pop that map just up there one more time? So Jesus takes what is a six or seven day trip north from, there you go, thank you, north from, uh, uh, from the Dead Sea region in Judea. He takes this, his message all the way up to the region of Galilee to the, on the western shores, really the northwestern shores of the Sea of Galilee. As John, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come, to, come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus picks up, John's put in prison, Jesus picks up John's wording, his message. And, and this is Jesus' gospel. He declares what his gospel is. And here's the thing. Most of us, when we're asked what is the gospel, we go, well, here's the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus came and died for our sins that, so that we can go to heaven. But that is not what Jesus is declaring. That wasn't to happen for some amount of time yet. Jesus is declaring his gospel, his good news, was that the time 
is here. It's now. Everything that you've been waiting for, he's saying to his first century Jewish audience, everything that you've been waiting for, this Messiah that you've been hoping to come for centuries, everything is now here. The king has come, and the kingdom begins, not when you die and you go to heaven, the kingdom begins now. You should change the way you think about this, and you should then, you should walk in a different way. And as we've seen, this was not greeted by a lot of people as good news. The people that were waiting for a Messiah, they wanted to reestablish Israel on the world stage. They wanted to make Israel great again. They wanted to re restore it to its previous grandeur. They wanted to kick the Roman oppressors out of their land and reclaim what they believed was rightly theirs, their titles and, and, and their, their powers. And, and they wanted to do it by force. Upside-down kingdoms don't work that way. That's the way the kingdoms of the world do. Oh, that they would learn that lesson. Oh, that Jesus' modern-day followers would learn that lesson. This is not what he came to do. And that might disappoint you. But it's true. Peter goes on. He says they went to Capernaum, um, which was that area just to the top of the Sea of Galilee and to the western side of it. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, super important um, quote here, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. So Jesus' first century audience is beginning to understand that Jesus is teaching them not something old, but something new. Can you tuck that one away? Because you're going to need it for the rest of the series. Jesus came not to teach them about something old, that Jesus came to teach them something they had never heard before, something that was brand new. And a lot of them didn't like it. All right, so we're up in the village of Capernaum now. Another one of the misnomers I'm trying to take on in this series is that none of this stuff, I mean, this is all fabricated, you know, third or fourth century lies. Here's what archaeologists have discovered about Capernaum. Here's the dig. Capernaum's up there to the left. Um, oh, we're right here. Yeah, Capernaum, no, Dead Sea. You'd have to go. You could take this one down. Capernaum's up north by the Sea of Galilee, up there in that region of Galilee, north, northwest of that Sea of Galilee. Here's what archaeologists have discovered about Capernaum. These are archaeological digs, and this is what the city of Capernaum looked like at least around the 4th century A.D., so about 300 years after Jesus was there. Um, in addition, now Capernaum is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. It's also um, referred to uh, in the writings of the first century, and we've talked about extra-biblical sources, the first century Judean uh, historian uh, Josephus. And he said, just like the Bible did, that it was a village uh, uh, on the Sea of Galilee. Now, as you know, or some of you know, many of the disciples were fishermen, and Capernaum was described as a fishing village repeatedly in the Gospels. Archaeological excavations have actually found fish hooks, and this one's interesting, weights for fishing nets. What did Jesus tell Peter to do at the, at the side of the Sea of Galilee, right? To drop your nets. Along with other kind of lower class household items, it's upside down kingdom, it's drawing, it's drawing not the people you would think, such as basic pottery, weaving implements, grain millstones. There is a synagogue 
The one we just read about. Remember, they went to Capernaum, right? Jesus went into the synagogue. A synagogue, the one we just read about, is mentioned in, in Mark and Luke and John, and it remains what, what its remains have been found in the town. You can see that, that can we put that first, um, first one back up, Maggie, the first picture of Capernaum? That is a rebuilt synagogue with the ivory walls that represent what was rebuilt around 300, 300 years after, after Jesus had been there. What they've discovered as they continued to dig out that synagogue, though, and they, they dated this by, by um, thousands of coins that they found in the pavement there. What they've done is they excavated around the 4th century synagogue. What they discovered, and this plaque attests to it in the next thing, um, it says, this 4th century white synagogue is built upon the remains of the synagogues of Jesus. As they dug down, they began to realize, see the dark stones, that that synagogue was actually built upon the synagogue in Capernaum. Given the size of, of uh, the city of Capernaum, it's likely there was only one synagogue in that town. That, my friends, is where this story that we're reading took place. And so Jesus is right here. When Peter, who was in the room in that synagogue with Jesus, tells Mark, and Mark writes it down, that as we were there in this Jewish holy place, a man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, to understand the story and why Peter tells, tells uh, this to Mark, right, why he tells them these three stories right in a row, Luke then does the same thing. You have to understand the backstory to what connects these stories. To get that, you have to understand what leprosy meant in the first century, especially in Judaism. Because when you and I hear leprosy, right, we think about skin diseases and, and arms falling off and things like that. That's not what they thought of in the first century. When you heard leper, your initial thought was not skin disease. Your initial thought was outcast. You have to understand the physical disease was almost, in these stories, incidental. Because lepers in the first century had become social and emotional outcasts. Lepers were not, listen now, lepers were not even allowed in town. They were kept consistently and constantly outside the walls of the city. And as a result, they were economically impoverished, utterly isolated emotionally. No one could touch them, let alone come near them. And to make it worse, in Judaism, in Israel, not only were they physically unclean, they were ceremonially, by the Mosaic law, unclean. They were not permitted, no longer, not only were they not permitted in town, they were not permitted in the temple. They weren't therefore permitted anywhere near the presence of God or, or anywhere near God's peoples. They were outcasts. They were social and religious pariahs. That's all what's meant when a leper shows up in that synagogue. And so it's likely, based on Jesus' reputation for healing that he had begun to develop in Capernaum, this guy snuck into town. It's a small town. Probably had his head down covering on so no one would see him. And at some point, Jesus gets close enough to him, I'd imagine, where he makes a run for it. And he sprints up to Jesus at great personal risk. In fact, you see his faith. He doesn't say to Jesus, if you can heal me. He says, if you're willing. I know you can, if you're willing. 
the script-shattering detail of what comes next, it turns cultural norms and religious protocols absolutely on their head. The first thing Peter tells Mark is that, quote, Jesus was indignant. Now, if you were in the audience, you, were, you would think to yourself, of course he's indignant. He's got to be infuriated that this leper is in the synagogue. That's what everybody else was. Who is this dirty? And he's likely, in, my, in their minds, he's a leper, likely because of some sin he had committed, that this is just what God does, right? God smites people for their sin, and so as a result, this guy's got leprosy because of just, just what he had done. He knows he doesn't belong there. He's breaking the commandments left and right. He's putting us all at risk. Everybody there would have thought Jesus is a good rabbi, would be indignant at this guy for doing this. But he wasn't. What you'll see is that he's indignant about what the people had done, about what their religion, their cultural norms had done by prioritizing rules and commands above people. You're going to see this as we travel to Jesus. This is what gets Jesus crucified. You're going to see that Jesus does this again and again and again. Almost to the point, if you don't get uncomfortable with it, I'm not sure you're realizing how, how comfortable we are in church. Now, this is why my friends aren't interested in a church. Because the church over centuries, well, we elevate commands and, and we elevate religion and ritual and protocol above people and pain and needs all the time. And so what does Jesus do? He not only does not shame the man for breaking the laws and commands and putting everybody at risk, Peter looks at Mark and he goes, I, I'm not, I can't, I was there. I, 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 I was wishing he, he wouldn't. But he reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus and Mark and Luke, make sure we get the details. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. Now, if I were just to ask you, why did Jesus reach out his hand and touch him? You might go, well, this is the way Jesus was going to heal him. This is the way Jesus heals. That's not true. As you're going to see just in one second, right? In the next story, Jesus could have healed him with just a word as he does with the paralytic. At another point, Jesus actually heals somebody when he's not even in the same town as him. He just heals, just tells the centurion, yeah, your, your servant is healed. Jesus didn't even need to be there to heal him. Jesus touched him. Why would he do that? He didn't need to. Because Jesus was not just healing his disease. Jesus was inviting him back in. He was healing him, not just physically, but socially, socially, emotionally, economically, culturally. You see, there were laws in place for, for lepers, and there were laws in place for rabbis. Jesus is a rabbi. By the law, he was forbidden from touching this man. But Jesus, this king, had come to bring something completely new. Do you remember that? What is this? A new teaching and with authority? Jesus was not obeying the commands of the old covenant. He was living out of the commands of a new covenant, a new way, a new teaching to love your neighbor as yourself. This man had not been touched in years. Jesus touched him. 
Jesus ignored the rules, the regulations, the principles, the protocols. He shattered religious norms. He shattered their expectations, and he touched them. Do your friends know this story? Do your kids know this story? Check this out. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. And as we know, he went and told it to everyone. And it became a big problem for Jesus. But go, show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Super interesting. Jesus says to him, now you know what you must do. You need to take that six or seven day journey back to the temple. You are a man that is still, even though, the, even though I, I am here, you are still under the old covenant of the Mosaic law. It was an if-then covenant, but it was a covenant between God and a nation. If the people of the, a nation would obey, God would bless the nation. If they did not, then he would not. And part of the Mosaic law in the, in the Old Testament book of Leviticus stipulated that this man now needed to go back to the temple to the priest it was about a week's walk away, and he needed to be examined by the priest, and he needed to be, be deemed by the priest to be clean, and then he would need to offer in the temple sacrifices of gratitude in order that he could be welcomed back into the community. Jesus tells him, since he is still living under the old covenant, Jesus has not initiated yet the new covenant, right, which would be through his, his dying on the cross. He says, now go and do that. But here's the interesting thing. Because Jesus had touched the leper, the law said he needed to do the same thing. He needed to go on that journey too. He needed to pack up all of his stuff to be ceremonially cleansed in the temple, ceremonially cleansed in the temple, and there to offer a sin sacrifice. Everybody knew, knows this. You'd have to imagine Peter and James and John and Andrew. Right now, there's only those four disciples sitting there, going, "No, no, no! Don't touch him! Don't! Don't! Don't!" Because, you know, they had plans. And you know what this is going to mean, Jesus. Now we got to go all the way back to Jerusalem to get right with God. But Jesus does not pack up and go to the temple. Because Jesus does not live under the old covenant. Jesus is initiating a new covenant, a new way to God. And the ceremonial laws of the temple were no longer going to be binding on him. And friends, listen, the ceremonial rules of the temple are no longer going to be binding on anyone after the resurrection who follows him. Relationships in this new covenant are going to be above religion. The lame will come before the law. Do your friends know this story? Have you taught it to your children? Jesus is very different. Peter would go on. It's a related story. This is why they're all right in a row. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large, num large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. What is he preaching to them? The good news. What is the good news? The time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe. And some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, why is there a crowd there? Because this leper couldn't stop yapping. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there are four very upset people in the room that night. 
The first has to be the homeowner, right? This is a real story. And these guys start digging a hole through the roof. Who's fixing it? How much is it going to cost? Why isn't Jesus lecturing this guy on private property rights? The second and third guy had to be the person uh, being lowered down and the people lowering him down. Imagine the effort that went into this, right, to get this guy here in front of Jesus. I mean, that's the great, the whole, um, the whole sin thing. Like, I, we, that's great, Jesus, but we didn't come for that. And I'm sure, let's be honest, right, answer the story. If you allowed your friends to do this for you, and when it's all said and done, I mean, you know, this paralyzed guy, this had to be scary as heck for him. He's lowered through a roof, and he gets down there, and he gets before this Jesus who healed the leper. Everybody had heard about that. You don't want to hear your sins are forgiven. You want to hear get up and walk, right? You want to hear, like, everything's fine. This story is usually a standalone sermon because there's so much going on at one level, what Jesus is doing is prioritizing our greatest need. We think it's all the stuff, all the things we pray for all the time. Usually it has to do with, with what we want, something we want to get or something we want to get, get out of. Jesus is very visibly saying there is something more important than your suffering. In fact, your suffering is what brought you here today. Jesus starts by bringing healing to a greater need, but then he addresses the third set, or in this case, the fourth set of upset people. You have the, guy, the homeowners are right. The guys that have pushed their way through the crowd and carried their friend here are not happy. The guy on the gurney is really upset. And then he addresses the religious leaders. He says, now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, they didn't say this out loud, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this is a rare instance where the Pharisees are 100% right. Right? If I, if I go out there this morning and punch Barry in the nose, which would be a mistake on my part, but if I went out and punched Barry in the nose, and Sammy looked at me and said, John, I forgive you for punching Barry in the nose. Barry would go, she can't forgive you for punching me in the nose, right? Like, you, you have to apologize to me. That's what Jesus was saying. The only person who can forgive the sin is the person on whom the sin is committed. This is Jesus hanging a plaque out that goes, I am the one against whom all sins have been committed. Whenever you have stolen or lied or cheated, whenever you've trampled on somebody else, you have committed those sins against me. I am not just some messenger sent from God to give you some, some kind of way. I am the way. I am the one who can forgive your sins because I'm the one who you've committed the sins against. This is stunning. Jesus is offering to this first century audience, by the way, he's offering it to this 21st century audience too, forgiveness of sins with no sacrifice, no priest involved, no religious guys necessary, no trip, no trip down to the temple, no scapegoating ceremony, Everybody in the room had to understand that for centuries there was a system in place for forgiving sins. It was a deal God had set up with Moses. It was the Mosaic Covenant. It was for the Jewish people. It was only for the Jewish people. And it was a very precise, again, it involved priests and sacrifices and temples, religious places with religious people, guys with robes and collars, annual journeys to Jerusalem. And Jesus shows up and simply says, Your sins are forgiven. 
No priest, no sacrifice, no temple. This was, and maybe to you if you really get it, to them and, and I think to us, it's offensive. I mean, Jesus essentially thinks he can walk in here and just replace thousands of years of religious tradition. You need the temple, Jesus. You, you need priests. You, you need to give something up or you need to put something in in order to be forgiven. And so he knows, of course, what they're thinking. Of course he knows. I mean, who wouldn't be thinking it? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? And he gives them a riddle. Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Do you think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? And Jesus knew the answer. Jesus knows that in order for him to say your sins are forgiven, it's going to cost Jesus everything. All of the penalty due sin, the sacrifice required by the sin, it would no longer be necessary under this new covenant Jesus was establishing. Why? Because he was going to bring a conclusion to the old covenant. He was going to fulfill it. How? By choosing willfully himself to be the final sacrifice due for all sin. Interesting, right? If you think about it, you have a leper that is, is kept out of the community, right? And so Jesus, when he is crucified, is crucified outside of the walls of the community. What does that allow? It allows the leper to come in. Jesus, when he's crucified, is nailed to a cross without the ability to move anywhere so that the paralytic can be free. It's the great exchange. He looks at them and he goes... I think he'd look at you and I, and he goes, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, and he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Just a little bit of background on the story. It's the same thing that in their mind, everybody in the room is thinking the same thing about the paralytic as they were about the leper. This man has to, must have done something to deserve his lot in life. We do the same thing in our secular Western culture. We call it karma, right? You get what you deserve. We believe, just like they believe, that there was a direct correlation between what was happening to them, right? For them, it was their sickness and their sin. Clearly, somebody had sinned in order for this man to be paralyzed. That's what they assumed. Sin always results in sickness. Many assumed it was a direct consequence. Something is wrong with you. This is happening to you. We do this every time we go, what have I ever done to deserve this? And Jesus just summarily rejects that view. He understands that, that sickness is a result of sin entering the world. The world is not as it should be. We all know that. But sickness and sin are not directly correlated. There is not a one-on-one -on -one relationship. This is why sometimes really good people die really young and really bad people seem to prosper. Jesus was using what they believed, that sickness was a result of sin, to show them that he has power over sin. Because if they think that sickness is a result of sin then you'd have to have power over the sin to, to reverse the curse of it. And Jesus shows them that he does. I, I, I like how Mark concluded, this amazed everyone. This guy has power to reverse the curse of sin. And they said, we've never seen anything like this. 
There was also another detail. He walked out in full view of the mall. In other words, everybody saw this. There's lots of eyewitnesses. This. You can go talk to people. They'll tell you. No priest, no temple, no sacrifice, and you don't get what you deserve. Do your friends know this story? Because I'm not sure we do a good job with this story. Do your kids, do you, want, do, do you explain this to your children? Let me, let me tell you about Jesus. Because he's a lot different than, than everything else you see going on around you in this world. And then finally, Mark and Luke conclude with a third crazy story. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus. Levi was a very common name. This, this was Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax, tax collector's booth. Now, you need to go and enter this story just a little bit, right? They are back where, at, at the northern part of this, the Sea of Galilee. This is, is likely where Peter and James and John and Andrew had been called. And they're walking along the, the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is probably talking about this new kingdom. And they're still not getting it. As we'll see lately, they're mostly, Peter and James and John and Andrew are mostly concerned about what position they're going to get in this new kingdom. They're mostly thinking about themselves. And as they're walking along, they come to, to Levi sitting at a tax collector's booth. If you've been around the church, you know that tax collectors were like the worst kind of sinners. It was like the prostitutes, the sinners, and the, ta the tax collectors had their own category. They were betrayers to their people. They were Jewish citizens who, who had cut a deal with Rome right, to extract taxes out of their fellow Jews, and they could take whatever they want, basically, as long as they gave Rome their, their cut. And so it's likely that one of the reasons that Peter knows who um, Matthew, or excuse me, this, his name's still here is Simon, that he knows, excuse me, not Simon, Levi, that he knows who Levi is the son of because this is his town. This same Levi has likely, like when, when, when um, Peter and James and John and Andrew would bring in a, fig, a big catch, Peter was on, on, the, on the shore waiting to get his cut by force. Right? Like, you know, Peter and James, hey, that's an, so you got 50 fish there, I'll take 10. This was the way it worked, right? And so Jesus now, with these guys in tow, walks up, he walks up to Levi in this tax collector's booth. Now, what are Peter and James and John and Andrew thinking he's going to say to Levi? Right? I mean, they're looking at him going, this is going to be good. This dirt bag, stolen from my parents, Right? I mean, I, worked, I work all day and all night. Just I got to come in and this clown takes a portion of my money. This guy is, is the worst of the worst of the worst. And they're sitting around going, they're thinking about all of the Old Testament verses they can apply to what's about to happen. Eye for an eye. Oh, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. Jesus, let him have it. And what does Jesus say to him? Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Come on, I, I, got four, I got four disciples here. I was here last weekend, maybe you heard some of the stories. I want you to come too. Imagine being Peter and James and John and Andrew. Do you, you know what drives me nuts about uh, we Christians sometimes is don't, don't we love Christian hero worship? Every, everybody, like my Facebook feed is always filled with some sports celebrity who's decided, who's come out as a Christian. And it's a, like, we just love to celebrate, like, like getting, getting a, a celebrity, getting one of all, you know, they're one of us. This is the complete other story. 
This is Peter walking along going, no way, dude, don't do that. Don't do, do you know what people are going to think of us if you put him in the story? Like, this is going really well. It's just us four, and plus now you're going to have to divide up the spoil by another one. Why this one? Do you know what people are going to think of us because of our association with this guy? We think of it completely. We're always trying to justify ourselves by our association with some, some good person. It gets worse. Next line. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. You've got to picture the scene. You've got these four guys, right? Peter, Peter and, and, and um, Andrew and, and James and John, right? Good Jewish boys. And they're sitting there. And the room is filled with freaks, right? All the people you can't stand. Everybody who has ever offended you in any cultural, spiritual, religious way. I mean, I don't know what, I mean, I mean you know, they've got piercings. They've got tattoos, you know, they don't, they, don't, they don't do anything that you think is the right thing to do. Jesus is hanging out with them. And you've got these four other guys sitting over here in the corner. And the story you'll see later on, Peter, he never really gets comfortable with this. Long after Jesus is dead, Paul actually has to go correct Peter on this because Peter is really still struggling with this concept. Rabbis don't go to the house of sinners. Here's what rabbis definitely don't do. They don't eat with sinners. In the first century, you weren't what you ate. You were who you ate with. This is so offensive. It is so upside down. It is so against the rules and the regulations and the commands. But somehow in this new kingdom, with this, this new king, relationships seem more important than rules. People seem more important than principles. Notice the detail. Many tax collectors and sinners followed, followed him. Many. Jesus was attractive to sinners and tax collectors. They wanted to be around him. They weren't repelled by him. They wanted to be around him. You know who Jesus is often not inviting into is religious people. The morally and ethically and culturally clean and good, the rule followers, the, the older sons. So when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I like this. They asked his disciples. You know what his disciples didn't do? They didn't answer the question. You know why? I don't think they had any idea. I don't know. It's really uncomfortable. I can't stand these dirtbags. It's really ticking me off. I'm thinking about bailing on the whole thing. Right? I thought I was something special. Turns out, like Levi's in here. They don't answer the question. I think they're sitting around going, ah. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, which must have gone over like a lead weight on Peter and James and John. Like, wait, wait, what? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come. Remember, we talked about this last, what, two weeks ago? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus didn't come for everybody. You better figure out if you count yourself as one or the other. I went out with a friend one night. I, I try not to be a freaky religious guy. Um, it just comes out sometimes, but I try not to be. And uh, we were sitting, well, this will make you feel better. We were sitting at a bar, and I said to him, uh, he's talking about some, some faith stuff. And I said, you know, 
tell me about, tell me about your faith. And he was describing it. It was like, seemed like really centered. And I said, well, that's great. I said, you should come to, to, to church. You should come to my church. And he goes, nah, I'm not going to come. I said, why not? He goes, because you hate gays. That's the impression that we give. Before everybody emails me, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't call us away from our sin or our our identities. He calls Peter, he calls Peter away from a full, full net of fish. It was the best thing that ever happened to him. He could have been rich. He calls Levi. I'm guessing that the disciples thought, well, Levi's never going to leave his tax collector's booth, right? He's got a good thing going here. He calls him away from, from his riches and his identity. It doesn't mean he doesn't call us away from our stuff. But boy, do your friends know who this guy is? Because I'm not sure we've done a good job explaining him to, to our kids. Who are you at the dinner party? Be honest with yourself. If you were at the dinner party, where would you be? Whose table would you be at? How comfortable would you be? I'll end with this. This is a teaser for next week. We're done. Then Jesus says something very confusing. We're going to pick it up next week. You probably won't like this. They didn't. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, this new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wines into new wineskins. Jesus is looking around, and this was a direct quote to, why aren't your, why, your, John's disciples fast? Your disciples don't seem to fast at all. They seem just plenty happy to sit around with the sinners and eat dinner. That was Jesus' response to them. Jesus has come to do a new teaching with new authority. Jesus has come to do something brand new. It is totally different than what had been conceived of before. He was not what the Jews wanted him to be. He was not what the Romans wanted him to be. He's likely not what you and I want him to be. How do I know that? Because I like Luke adds on to this verse, something for you and I to worry about. He goes, after, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. We love to hold on to our ways, our religion, our practices, our culture, the kingdoms of the world, our positions, our identities, our stuff. No one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. The question in the coming weeks for you and I, as we start to realize this guy is not who we want him to be, is which wine would you like to drink? This is Jesus of Nazareth. He is not necessarily who guys like me who have been in church for 30 plus years want him to be. But he might be just who your friends are looking for. He might be someone your kids find attractive. And so can I encourage you, friends, let's not miss him ourselves, but please, please be sure also, let's also make sure by the way we live, as we bear the fruit of righteousness, that we don't make others miss him either. Let's stand and close in song.